Would you please open your Bibles this morning to Genesis 1? We began a brief series last Sunday that Matt and I hope to team preach in the coming weeks between last Sunday and Thanksgiving, and we're using Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as a springboard, uh, not just into the truth that God says before us, but even to touch on several uh, current issues, topics that are frequently in the discussions uh, at the uh, street level and in the news, and uh, our prayer is that the Word of God, as always, would not only be the source of truth, but that it really would serve as a foundation for your thinking and for your living, because God is not simply trying to give us truth that we would just affirm and kind of check the boxes intellectually um, or academically, but He actually wants you and me to be changed by truth and wants us to be led ultimately from where we are into the place we all long to be. And that is a place of rest, a place of, of safety and security, of health and peace, of a place that he has revealed for us as heaven. And there's so much more to that than just, you know, glory and clouds and eternal song. It actually includes some of those things, but it's far, far more. And as we began the series last week, uh, we noted that there are some questions all of us are, are wrestling with really day in and day out, like what's wrong with the world at the moment? And it's easy to kind of point the finger elsewhere and say, well, there are what is wrong, or that is what is wrong, or this is what is wrong, but there's another question a lot of us don't want to wrestle with, and that is, what's wrong with me? Um, and yet the Bible gives us perspective, and part of how God begins to address that in the early chapters of Genesis uh, is really critical to, to not only understanding the day in which we live and the, the things that we wrestle with as individuals, but to also understand there is a path forward there's a path forward. According to research uh, from the Cultural Research Center, there are seven major worldviews that Americans are most influenced by. And there, I, I printed those up there so you could see the seven. Biblical theism, Eastern mysticism, Marxism, moralistic therapeutic deism, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Nihilism, postmodernism, and secular humanism. And pollster George Barna shared that most Americans actually blend their beliefs to create a customized worldview. And for the same reasons that we love a smorgasbord, like you can pick and choose what you want, and some of you parents uh, actually like to take your kids there uh, because they can find stuff they like, and even if it's, you know, jello and chocolate pudding and french fries, you know, like at least for one day this, you know, week or month or year, I'm not going to hear from my kids, ew, I don't like that. Like, there are choices. Well, Americans tend to function like that in, in all of life. We pick and choose the things that we like. But among those nagging questions that I, I threw out for us uh, last week are the, maybe the two most important questions, who am I really and why am I here? And that often doesn't mix well, at least from a biblical perspective, biblical perspective with what many of us would like to pick and choose. In that same article that I'm referring to that I read this week, it go, the author goes on to say, in other words, the dominant worldview in America and really the West today is 
Syncretism. Do you know what that word means? Well, it, you know what synchronize means, right? You, you bring things together, like your, your phone is synchronized with your computer and with other technology. It all, it all comes together. Uh, well, syncretism would be that you pick and choose the philosophies and religious points and truth as you see it, and you kind of package it up and, and you make it your own. It's actually what Old Testament Israel did after God had delivered them mightily and said, worship me, I'm the one true God. You should have no other gods before you. Well, what happened over time? They, it wasn't that they just rejected Jehovah outright, but they added to their Jehovah or Yahweh worship Baal, throw in an Ashtaroth here. Oh, there's a god, Moloch, that seems to be really powerful. Let's add him. And so in time, they create this syncretistic form of worship. And God says, I'm not about that. It dishonors me. Well, that's kind of what is happening for many of us. We're, we're holding on to blended worldviews. And many people make the mistake of thinking that we're the ultimate uh, you know, authority and arbiters of that, and that if we want to blend it, then it's ours to blend. But that's created all kinds of confusion and difficulty, hasn't it? I want you to follow along as I read Genesis 1, 26 through 31, just a little portion here at the end of, of this first chapter in Genesis. And then we'll pray, and then we're going to uh, dig in a little deeper on this text and see if we can't find God's answers for who am I really and why am I here. Genesis 1.26, this is the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it not only reveals truth to us, but more than just revealing truth or principles for life, it reveals you. You are the great subject of the Bible, your perfect character, your great glory, your remarkable plan, not only to create all that is, but to rescue sinners who rebelled in those early days of the world and brought death and disease, disorder and chaos of every kind. Oh, Lord God, we see that all around us today. We live with it in our communities and we live with it in our souls. And we ask that by your Spirit, you would straighten our thinking on this day, that we might believe your truth, 
that you would reshape our hearts, that we might not only believe your truth, but submit ourselves to it in order that we might, we might experience the blessing of your word and your wisdom, that we might know the beauty of personal transformation, that we might know the power of the Holy Spirit's work in us to bring order where chaos once ruled. Oh, Lord God, reveal to us today our need of the Savior again. We're thankful that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have revealed your great purpose to us. So come, Lord God, come and bless us again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we look at Genesis 1 and, and come today to verses 26 to 31, I want you to notice, first of all, what God reveals to us concerning the divine origin of the human race. Because even among those seven worldviews that I touched on through the, the article a moment ago, there would be different perspectives and even ideas about how we got here. What does, uh, what, what does Eastern mysticism uh, have to say on that? What does something like Marxism or even secular humanism? And there are a variety of origin theories or origin stories, depending on who you talk to and how they might describe it. Uh, but God actually says, I want you to know where you came from. And I think it's really helpful to keep in perspective that when God inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, Moses, to write this book, the first audience to receive this book were former slaves. And not just like a, a generation of slaves who'd been you know, captivated and, and hauled away into slavery, but multi-generations. And, and that background that they had experienced, their personal history shaped a lot of their identity. God comes in and through uh, powerful miracles and divine power releases them from their slavery and begins to create a new identity for them. And one of the things that he wants to make sure they understand is that they are not the product of some inferior race that has been subjected for hundreds of years. They are not uh, a lower class of humanity than the Egyptians would have made them feel like. They're not the product of random chance through billions of years of evolutionary changes uh, along the way. They are actually divinely created, a divine origin. Uh, and that's not just true for Israel, but it is true for all of us. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at verse 26, because in, the, in our standard English, conversational English, you might look at this and say, uh, it, verse uh, 26, when God says, let us make man, you, you might say, so what about the ladies? Well, when God uses that term, actually, man is the Hebrew word, and, and I put it in, in italics, all right? It, to transliterate it, it looks like Adam. And I didn't capitalize that intentionally because most of us would look at that and say, Adam, oh, that's the first male who walked the earth, and that is true. But before he got that name, Adam was just the general term for humanity. And so even in the translation process to, to, to try to you know, choose a term, for, for our purposes as English-speaking people, man tends to, uh, tends to designate gender right out of the gate, doesn't it? But it really isn't. And that's why you go on to read, so God created them, male and female. He's still talking about the human race. So man is the Hebrew word for Adam, a generic word for humanity. 
We've, we've moved rapidly away from that, and even in recent years, that's been a big deal, right? As if somehow that's a chauvinistic, you know, bigoted terminology, and, you know, if, if we were reading a Hebrew text, we'd all go, it's just no big deal, the human race. So if, if you want to make a little note in your scriptures, even read it that way, it actually is accurate. Now, God will get to the, the designation of, of gender in just a moment, but um, not here. So there's a divine origin, God said, let us make man in our image, and then he goes to work doing it. Verse 27 says simply, so God created man in his own image. And that brings us to a second important point, uh, the, the divine purpose. Before we get there, though, I want to note something really interesting. Those of you who've been here long enough know that sometimes I like to dig into a little bit of background, history, context, whatever. But I was struck again by some things. Um, that emerge when you go back and study the, the context of Moses' day and Israel, what they were facing. But the concept of image of God was actually used widely in the ancient uh, Near East writings and belief. And I want to share some things that, again, give us a little fuller, richer perspective on why it's such a big deal for God to tell us in Genesis 1 that we are created in his image. It was common in those days common part of religious belief uh, and expressed in a variety of ways that the gods of those days would often put into uh, a king or another character some divine substance. And secondly, that king would then function as the representative of God on earth in, in his rule or in her, uh, her reign as the, the vice regent, if you will, as one author writes, of the God uh, of that nation. And so they would act as that God uh, ordained them to act. And then um, in, the, in the third place, the king was to function not only as the representative, but it was only the king or other high official who was the image of God. Um, and I was struck by that, saying, you know, so for the typical the, you know, for the average Hebrew, they would have a no expectation uh, of being recognized with some kind of divine status. In their context, that was reserved for Pharaoh. And even all Egyptians would have believed that. You know, he's God, a God. He represents God. And so again, when you, when you and I read this, and we don't marvel at this in, in quite the same way, but if you've been told all your life that you're an inferior being, and you've been treated that way, and you sometimes wonder if you're just little more than an animal when it comes right down to it, to hear then, through a powerful prophet like Moses, the word of God that you're actually created by this God, Yahweh, created in his image, that had to be shocking, if not stunning. But I'm also reminded even in our context today that so many people have been told that you are the product of random evolutionary changes over billions of years, descended from monkeys. That's gonna shape your identity. That's gonna shape how you think about yourself presently and your parents, the coming generations. I mean, that, that has an impact. But look at the biblical text now because God uses two particular words, let us make man in our image and likeness. And you know what's really interesting is this term image appears uh, even in Genesis. It's going to appear in Genesis 5.3 that tells us when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. 
You come to Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you begin to see this term image used in ways that it doesn't go into great detail to tell you exactly what being in God's image is like. You just start to see that it has to do with looking like someone or, or, or acting like someone or representing someone. I don't have time to really go into it, but even Genesis 9-6 is interesting to me that God establishes capital punishment post-flood, not because primarily you and I have a, a God-given right to life, although we believe we do. The primary reason capital punishment is enforced is because the murder of another human being is the desecration of the image of God. He's placing a high value on it. What begins to unfold for us, though, are some general ideas here in Genesis 1, but really you kind of need to read all of the Bible to know what God is like, and then that helps you understand what it means to be made in his likeness. And so big categories begin to emerge, and historically, I mean, you can read some of the greatest theologians and, and see a variety of ideas that are not necessarily contradictory, but they take us all kinds of directions because God is great and glorious, and he is complex in so many ways and he created us in his image in its basic sense image uh, refers to um, those things that represent other uh, other things so a statue is a representation of whatever the subject uh, is there are models there are drawings and likeness is a word that just means you're similar in appearance or similar in character or similar in values and so I think, broadly speaking, the image of God, as we continue to read through this particular passage uh, and, and then build even out of Genesis 1 and 2, would, would need to acknowledge that we've been created like him to reflect his nature. God is a, a God of perfect intellect, powerful intellect. Well, you and I are created with the ability to think and reason, including abstract reasoning, and that is what separates us and, and puts a significant gap uh, between human beings and, you know, your favorite pet. Uh, there, there's just no record that I'm aware of, of any group of animals like, you know, dogs or cats or monkeys getting together and to say, hey, let, let's talk about f- the philosophy of life. And somebody should write this down and maybe somebody, you know, one of our species will write a book. They, they weren't created with that capacity. We have the power to make moral decisions, We have the power to exercise our wills. There are virtues that are universally regarded like wisdom or courage uh, or compassion or love that are a reflection of this God because he is all of those things. And even in reflecting his nature, there's an immaterial part of us. And so that's why we speak of, oh, my heart just aches. And we don't mean the physical organ that's pumping blood through our bodies. We're referring to something immaterial in us, our heart or our soul or our spirit. We know it. Well, it's a reflection of the nature of God. It's the, the image and likeness of God is also reflected in relationships, those relationships that are most important to us. And you see that begin to emerge in this text that God, that God makes one male and one female initially, and calls them into relationship with a view uh, of companionship, and we'll dig into this deeper in the coming weeks in chapter two. He, he partners them in work and partners them in reproduction and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill this earth 
with image bearers. And so that plurality, even in relationship, is a reflection of the, of the very nature of God himself because he is a relational God. And we're Trinitarian in our theology, not because we cooked that up and somebody said, hey, we should come up with a really amazing and mind-blowing concept of Trinitarianism. No, we read through the, the Bible and we see God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit and we read about how they cooperate and fellowship and bless and, and love and serve one another. And so we're created with relational capacity just like that. Relational capacity in terms of relationship with him, but relationship with one another. And furthermore, God shows us the way and, and reminds us that those relational responsibilities include loving one another. And that ultimately goes back to the fact that God is love. We're to live in holiness and righteousness toward one another. That's why you don't steal your neighbor's stuff. That's why you don't covet your neighbor's wife. That's why you don't murder your neighbor. That's why you don't bear false witness because it would, be, it, would, it would not be a true reflection of the nature of God who is himself righteous and just and true um, in all his ways. So there is a relational aspect of the image and likeness of God. And then third, the third big category would be just the way we live life, function. And even in this text, he calls uh, the first man and woman to exercise dominion, to rule over the earth. I, I was thinking too how our senses reflect the reality, not that God has a body like humans, but because God is a seeing God, we have eyesight. God is a hearing God. We have ears that can hear. God's a communicating God, so we have a mouth uh, and, and the capacity to speak. All of this begins to just uh, kind of rough in a concept of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And oh, I so, I mean, I'm at a crossroads right now and you haven't been with me over the last several days to understand just almost the agony of my soul, but I was thinking how that, that Christ becomes the perfect image of God. And Colossians 1 just says it straight out that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And firstborn does not have reference to a physical birth, but rather is a term that means Jesus is at the head of the line. He has the preeminence. And he becomes that picture of what the image of God really should be. And, it, and I was thinking specifically of, of how in John's gospel when Philip says to Jesus, hey, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and still you say, show me the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because he is the perfect image of God. And that's what it should have been for us from creation. We're not there yet, but in chapter three, we'll, we'll see and we're gonna spend time looking at why things are not the way they ought to be, including the image and likeness of God. I, I, I wanna here's the crossroads, and this has been the struggle over the last three or four days uh, in preparing this. I, I really need to stop and you know, spend about 15 to 20 minutes just unpacking passages like Colossians 1 um, that, that you could just savor as I'm savoring in my soul that Christ is that perfect image. Yet at the same time, uh, Colossians 1.16 goes on to say that he actually created all that is, so he's still in a category of his own. We'll have to save that, though. So to summarize uh, and, and simply state uh, the 
purpose when we think an image of likeness of God. I, I wanna make it just as, as simple and straightforward as I can. I think there are two aspects of it. To represent God, uh, being created in the image of likeness of God means to represent God both in what we are and what we do. So you should think of image as a noun and a verb. I am or should be the image of God. I'm also called to image him. It's what we are and what we do. If we pause for a moment, does that not begin to give you great joy? Those of you who've been here for a while have seen this picture before. I, I just kind of return to it when I'm looking for a graphic of, of just overflowing joy. And I love the fact that this little guy has a copy of the open Bible on his lap. Now, I, you know, I look at him and think, how, how much of that could he read and understand? Maybe more than I give him credit for. But when you begin to read this text, I mean, does it not say to you, what, what honor is mine to have been created in the image of the eternal, invisible, unchangeable, almighty, all-wise, all-everything God? Me? Yeah. It's the highest honor. And secondly, what value that places on every human being. Some of you actually grew up in homes where you were told you're a worthless dirtbag. I'm sorry that your mom and I even brought you into this world. What a loser. You'll never amount to anything. And you, I mean, you were hammered with messages for as long as you can remember that you're worthless. Then you sat in classrooms that never once mentioned that you were divinely created by God in his image, in his likeness. There just was no one or no thing around you that gave you any sense of, of personal value or worth. And now God steps into your world with his unchangeable truth and says, oh, you have greater value than you can possibly imagine. And then thirdly, what opportunity? That's what gives perspective to the life we've been called to live. Yeah, even in a broken world, even, even at this moment where so many people woke up today full of anxiety, some have already turned to drugs and alcohol and all kinds of form of amusement or entertainment. I mean, because they don't want to face the reality of life on planet Earth at this moment, and they're desperate to escape it, desperate to resolve it, desperate to change it. And, and here God in his kindness has brought you into his word to say, I'm gonna give you some perspective. And yeah, life really is broken and you are broken, but there's hope for you. What an opportunity. And I do look at some of you who are younger and I know you're wrestling with it like, what kind of life am I gonna have? And I hear my, my mom and dad and then grandpa shows up and man, he talks about how terrible things are on planet Earth. It's like, who wants to live in this world? Oh, listen, young friend and old alike. First of all, grandpa, stop it. You are a discouragement to the younger generation and they need to understand how you too are looking to this God who created you and chose this moment in history for you to live out your life. Stop talking about the good old days, at least in the way you do. You need to read Ecclesiastes. Pay attention to Solomon's wisdom there. The, the days, first of all, those old, good old days weren't as good as you remember them. You've forgotten a lot of the hard stuff there. Second of all, you are positioned by God to give your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren the same hope that you, you came to find. And it's not in, you know, a good old USA of a bygone era. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in his word. Our hope is in his purpose for creation. So now, everybody else, like, s stop letting 
you know, whatever news outlet it is that, that you go to kind of set the trajectory for your thinking and the temperature of your soul and the perspective of your, your heart. Open the word of God. Listen to him. Look at what he says. We, we really have um, a great opportunity. First of all, to believe it and then to live out of this powerful truth. We're not here by random chance. And as I try to remind you frequently, God's not wringing his hands this morning going, oh, what a mess. What are we gonna do? How extraordinary your life really is. And some of you can't see it yet. May God give you faith to believe even some of these opening truths that are not just powerful truths, but they are life-changing. Honor, value, opportunity. Let's press on. Now, in the next uh, couple of phrases here, there's also a divine distinction within the human race. I wrestled with what term to use here because there, there are some differences being established, yet it, it's not a... Um, we, we don't want to see this as, you know, like a superior and inferior uh, division that's being established at all, but the, the text simply says God created them male and female, and so the, the divine wisdom and the divine power uh, emerge in this divine creation of what we have come to know, know as two genders. Now, I do want to pause for a moment, and we'll, we'll, I think in the coming weeks, have opportunity to go a little further into this, but we are often told today that gender is a social construct. And if you're not familiar with that term, to give you a simple definition, a social construct is something, and I'm quoting this from uh, a popular dictionary, it's an idea that has been created and accepted by the people in a society. An idea that has been created and accepted by the people in society. And there are some examples of, of social constructs that you can look around. So I don't want to say that it's a, it's a bogus term from you know, beginning to end. Um, there would be some examples, I think, that are legitimate of social constructs. But the problem, the problem is... Uh, from the perspective of many today, everything in life that you and I know is a social construct. Well, if we're the ones who came up with the idea to begin with, or a preceding generation, and we're the ones who've historically accepted it, then it's reasonable to say, well, then couldn't we come up with a new idea and accept something different? And, and many people would say, yeah. And that's exactly what is happening in many places today. So whether we're talking about money or actually countries with their borders, or beauty itself, to morality, family, even to gender, you know, this discussion is underway. Well, maybe it's just a social construct. But I would back up and say, if we're gonna use this basic definition that it, that it has to do with an idea that has been created and accepted, I, I wanna back up one step and say, well, whose idea is the human race to begin with? And while in one sense, at least for the purpose of discussion, that depends on how you answer the question, where did we come from? From a biblical worldview, male and female is not a social construct, is it? It was God's idea. It was God's initiative. God did the actual work of creation. And he's not asking you and me to accept this before it comes, becomes reality. He's actually saying to you, listen, all that I did, was, all that I created was very good. And he's asking you and me to accept it. So whose idea is a two-gender world? And the answer from the biblical worldview is very simply, it's God's. I'm, I'm going to recognize that if you operate out of one of the other six primary worldviews that 
describe most Westerners these days, that, that you would answer that a little differently. But from a biblical perspective, that's it. And I want you to notice, too, that, first of all, it, it's, a, it's a part of creation. Like, God did this. Um, and that matters to us. And second of all, since that point, there's actually been a divine assignment at birth. Because not even your mom and dad chose your gender. That's why it's an exciting moment in the course of pregnancy when, when you learn the gender of the child. And so it's a big deal in our present day, you know, gender reveal parties and all that. And there are very humorous videos floating around there about how those things went so badly. You know, from balloons flying away that were never popped to, you know, people, you know, pointing one of those exploding you know, blue or pink powder things the wrong way and like, you know, blasting a spouse or hurting themselves personally. That's a big deal to us when we, when we learn and, and it's pretty much it's a, it's a blue thing or a pink thing, right? Well, that actually is a reflection of the creation narrative and that's divinely assigned. One of the great wonders of the universe, uh, we've talked about this before, is human DNA, do you know everything about you and me was packaged into our DNA from the start? It's all there. And DNA contains the basic code that tells each cell in your body and mind how to grow, how to function, and reproduce. You can see the quotation. Some of you toward the back may have a hard time reading all of that, but let me read this. The National Library of Medicine states, each cell in the human body, except the mature red blood cells and platelets, which do not contain a nucleus, contains a complete copy of the human genome. Approximately 3.2 billion base pairs organized into 23 pairs of chromosomes, uh, unpaired in gametes, which most of us read that and like, I, I don't even, I, I know those are words that I should understand, but like what really is behind that? But then it goes on to say with an estimated 50,000 genes. DNA is certainly not a social construct, but it's all that information that God used to produce you. It's why some of you have dark hair and some of you have light hair and darker skin and lighter skin. It's why some of you are male and some of you are female. It's why some of you are tall and some of you are short and some of you are inclined to other issues and challenges. Even as the, even as the gene pool has deteriorated uh, through the centuries, some of you have a, a, a genetic predisposition to certain weaknesses and illnesses and some of you have genetic predispositions to longer life. There's an amazing amount of information packed into those little strands of DNA and every one of your cells, with the exception of your, your red blood cells and platelets, has it. And some of those cells were designed by God to produce an ear, a nose, a finger, a toe, and they did. It's a marvel. It's not a social construct. So even the, even the biology behind this points us back to a creator who said, in my wisdom and in my goodness, when I create the human race, I'm going to create male and female. That's part of his blessing. That's why it's so heartbreaking today to see the confusion that is resulting in this whole gender discussion and even transgender movement. And do you know what further staggers me, just to give you one more uh, little statistic? Well, some of you have already read it there at the bottom. The average human being has 37.2 trillion cells. <laughs> How do we even count that high? 
Well, the national debt is going to give us an illustration of that fairly soon. Like, <laughs> we're approaching that, right? But even then, like, those are, those are numbers that just stagger the mind. What an awesome creator God. And you know, he's calling you and me to believe his record of our origin, of our design, and our purpose. From the early days, when we come to chapter three, we're gonna see people who are tempted to believe they know better than God or to question his goodness, to say maybe what he said isn't really so. Maybe what he has produced really isn't as good as he says it is. And, the, and by nature, and after they fell, human nature fell with them. And you know what? Every one of us was born with a suspicion that maybe God isn't as good and powerful, that his word isn't really authoritative in my life, that his plan and purpose really won't take me where I want to go. That's what we're wrestling with today. And I've been thinking even in recent weeks, like some of us actually get really angry about some of these cultural movements at the moment, and there's a right place for righteous indignation. Just make sure you're angry with the right things or right people, and, and cultivating in your soul a uh, broken heart over those who are created by God in his image for grand eternal purposes that they don't fully understand, but the confusion and, and, and fear and anxiety of their souls has reached a point where they actually look in the mirror and go, I don't know who I am. This first option doesn't seem to be working out, so maybe I'm gonna try another option. Be careful that you're not angry with that individual who is confused for reasons and even because of powers that are, that are at work in this world that really are beyond their capacity to fully grasp and understand. In this passage, you also see divine blessing. Twice in Genesis 1, Moses writes that God blessed them. The first is verse 22 with reference to all living creatures. But the second is here in verse 28. Look at that with me. And God blessed them. The first male, the first female. Now remember, Blessing has to do with God extending divine favor. So even when we say to a person who sneezes, God bless you, we're actually saying, oh, you need God's favor. And I, you know, the origin of that whole thing of why when people sneeze, you know, we would say God bless you and you know, the great plagues of bygone eras. But we recognize when we bless somebody that we actually want to extend some kind of favor to them. Well, God's really doing it, and he's doing it in a multifaceted way. The, the, this world that he's created, just to review a few things that we looked at last week, is teeming with life, teeming with abundance, and, and it is already producing, and there's so much potential that lies in the earth so that when this man and woman begin to work it, I mean, they're going to see things that they can never fathom. The breath of life that they enjoy moment by moment is part of his, of his blessing, but there are there are three pairs that I want to point you to. First of all, God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I would say this is the blessing of relationship and reproduction. God began with these two image bearers with the plan that the earth would be filled with them. And you know, right now, we are just shy of eight billion image bearers on the planet. Hey, good news, there's room for more. Despite what we're often told, about overpopulation. You know, actually there's a reverse concern that is emerging right now, and again, you can find articles about it as I did this past week. Countries like China are recognizing the problem. The World Economic Forum reports at the end of May, this was 2021, the Chinese government announced that parents in China would now be permitted to have up to three children 
This announcement came only five years after the stunning reversal of the 1981 child policy. Something is clearly going on. The article goes on to say that something is that China has experienced a fertility collapse. According to the latest census released in May, China is losing roughly 400,000 people every year. And and we're not just saying that they're dying, we're saying that's, that's a net loss in population. And while it still claims its population is growing, Even if these predictions are taken at face value, the population decline uh, previously projected to start by mid-century may now actually arrive by 2030. The U.S. birth rate has declined for six straight years and 19% since 2007. And like China, the U.S. birth rate is now well below replacement rate of 1.6. And for a country to naturally replace its population, its birth rate needs to be at least 2.1. Now, I know that's a little technical talk, but the point is, and we're not the only two countries in the world who are seeing this, but God's purpose initially was, hey, I'm gonna put you in a relationship, and part of that relationship and, and love that you begin to develop one for another is gonna overflow in reproduction, and by the way, that's part of my good design that you would fill up planet Earth with image bearers. Second blessing, control and dominion, or work and dominion. Again, I wrestle with what word to use. The word subdue has to do with bringing things under control and it's what God was calling the first man and woman to do with the resources he had had given to them and even your ongoing battle with dandelions is a reflection of God's thumbprint on you you're like these things are not supposed to be here I sometimes wonder though because at least at least you know once a year or during the growing season man dandelions can look spectacularly beautiful especially that yellow against the green right but the rest of the time they're an annoyance and so you work hard to subdue it, to bring it under control, because you don't want a yard full of weeds, you want a yard full of grass and flowers and other plants. Well, you know what? You're a reflection of the God who created you at that point. So the term subdue has to do with exercising control. It's part of the work we've been called to. The term dominion has to do with exercising authority, and we'll see that again in chapter 2, verse 15, where God says, uh, to the man and the woman, I want you to work it and work the garden and keep it. What, a, what an amazing world it is. On the sixth day, God delegated a portion of his authority over every living thing to us. Even your little kids who've never really studied you know, a theology of creation and their place in the world and their purpose, you know, when your little child steps forward and says, Mommy, I want a kitty, some of that is rooted in this very thing we're talking about. No kitty woke up this morning and said, Mommy, I want a human. (laughs) They were not designed by God to have that kind of control and dominion. I love my dog. And aside from the joy, you know, she brings me as a living creature, marvelously created by God. She is work every day. (laughs) Ask Kristen how much hair we vacuum up sweep up sometimes you just ignore it because it's like i'm just tired of this we love our german shepherd she's the last one we will probably ever have she is lazy she i think she sleeps 19 hours a day at this point i go out to cut the grass she's never volunteered to help when it's time for her to eat she just stares at us or she walks to the door to the garage where we keep the food never once has said could I help you make your dinner? Why don't you eat first, and then when you're good and ready, I'll eat. 
She's not designed for this kind of thing, but you are. Such great value compared to all other living creatures. Well, the blessing of control and dominion. The last one is provision and expectation. And just very quickly, look at verses 29 and 30. There's this marvelous promise of abundant food. And not just for the humans, for all living creatures. Jesus will pick up on that, won't he, in the Sermon on the Mount, point to the birds of the air. He says they don't worry about what they're going to eat. They just rise each morning in the sweet little faith, if I can even put it that way, and it's not really. But they just know the Creator's, the creator's got something for us today. Let's go find it. And he's made that same promise to you and to me. Isn't it sad that so many of us feel like it's all up to us? Well, you know, when you've been taught from birth that there is no God, first of all, who would care for you, love you, provide for you, protect you, keep you. There's no God, you know, who really would love you enough to be active in your world to remedy your greatest hurts and sorrows or who would offer any hope for humanity. Uh, Then it is up to you. And I can actually kind of understand why those two young people would throw cans of tomato soup on a masterpiece of artwork over, wasn't that in England? And then glue their hands to the wall to try to draw attention to the fact that we're concerned about maintaining you know, uh, priceless paintings and, and from their perspective, letting our world collapse. Because they have no God. They have no God to trust in his great power and sovereignty. Of course they need to get somebody's attention. They're terrified that it's all gonna come to a catastrophic end. But you don't have to live in that hopelessness. You don't have to live in that kind of philosophical understanding because the Bible story that begins with God tells us that we're created in his image, among other things. Created to know him, to worship him, to serve him to be provided for, protected, cared for. And when we make it through this really hard life that yes, includes suffering and death and, and vicious crimes, but it's not always gonna be this way. And God says in light of eternity, your, your life right now, it's like a little vapor. So short, so brief. And he calls us to trust him. Oh, your life matters. More than you can possibly know. Because you were created by God and created for divine purpose, and created for divine blessing. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Before we pray together, I wonder where you are in your own worldview and the assimilation of it. Is yours shaped by the truth of God's word? Or are you, like so many others, just kind of picking and choosing and say, I'll take a few pieces from the the biblical text and narrative, but I also like, you know, what what Karl Marx has said, or I like this other person, or, you know, I just can't get away from the fact that, you know, some of Darwin's theories, even though they're a little old and antiquated, they've been modified, and I, I think there's some, some truth in all of those things. Is that you? It's gonna lead you to frustration. And you're gonna end up with many more questions unanswered. God doesn't answer all of ours, but he answers the most important ones. And what's it gonna do to the coming generations? What's it gonna do to your children that you won't believe personally and pass on truth like this creation narrative to them? Where are they gonna get their personal identity? 
There's some hard questions that we need to wrestle with, but my friend, God stands before you today and says, oh, look at me, listen to me, believe me. Will you? Will you? Father, would you take your word, plant it deep with us, within us, shape and fashion us by it for your glory. Do all your holy will for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.